So we are continuing our series in the Minor Prophets, and uh, just remind you, that's the last 12 books of the Old Testament, often neglected. Lots of people don't end up reading uh, these, uh, but we've looked at familiar ones like Jonah, uh, some others like Joel, uh, leading to Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. We're in the middle of Zephaniah. Actually, uh, we're going to be in the last chapter of Zephaniah, uh, and uh, we'll end up uh, just taking a break for Easter next week uh, and, and look at that. But it's interesting that the New Testament authors talk about Jesus dying and rising from the dead according to the scriptures. What does that mean? That the Old Testament is pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to look at that uh, in the, the upcoming week. Uh, just by word of uh, just encouragement, um, I'm really looking forward to Sunday school uh, during our look at eschatology because it's, we, we go from a framework to really starting to land the plane of what the scriptures teach about uh, God unfolding his plan of redemption. So uh, I encourage you to be a part of that after the donut hour uh, and um, uh, just be a part of learning together. So if you would, would you stand as we uh, read the concluding verses of Zephaniah as this is the prophet uh, speaking to us. This is the transition point of the book of Zephaniah. So uh, eight kind of summarizes where we came from and then in verse nine uh, gets us to the new section. Therefore we wait or therefore wait for me declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no justice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, 
I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, and at that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let me pray. God, uh, by your spirit, would you speak to us today? Would we uh, hear from you? Uh, Obviously, the prophets speak in ways that we don't speak in today. God, would you give us clarity? Would you give us insight? Would we help, help us to see your grace on display this morning? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So it comes around every year. New Year's Day, and at New Year's Day, uh, there's great football games, uh, and, uh, but people oftentimes are making New Year's resolutions, right? Uh, it's because it's a time to reorient your, your life. It's kind of the flip of the calendar. It's a time to get things back in order. It's a time to start over and get your life back on track. It is kind of the reset button. It's New Year's Day. And, and kind of in that vein and thinking about that, if you walk through any bookstore uh, or any uh, library, uh, there's a whole section called self-help. Uh, there's a whole self-help section. You know, basically it's us making our lives better. Here's 10 principles for a better life. If you apply these principles, your life is going to get better, so you're well on your way. But if you're anything like me and anything like everybody else in this room, given any amount of time, you'll see the fruitlessness of self-help, right? Because we let ourselves down. Self-help is no help. So what do we need? What do we need? If, If the reality is all the things I set out to do, I end up failing myself in, uh, uh, what do I need is I need a help that is outside of me. I need help from one who does not fail. I don't need principles for a better life that I'm just going to not apply or break. I need the grace of our God, the one who will not fail to fall on us. And that's what Zephaniah 3, the second half of it, is about. It is about the grace of God, and it is about the nature of the grace of God and how it flows to people like you and me who consistently go our own way, who in our natural state say, you know what, I think I have a better idea than the creator of the world, who say, you know what, I'm going to do it my way, and we, re- we rebel against the living God. Zephaniah 3 is what it is where the help and the grace of our God falls to us, not to give us 10 steps to a better you, but it is that we would be transformed by the mercy and grace of God and then start to see what that means for us. So what is the nature of grace? As we look at this passage in Zephaniah 3, we see this reversal, the reversal of the effects of sin and even the reversal of what God has brought against the rebellion and sin of the nations and his own people. Because in Zephaniah, the, uh, God's character is on display. 
chapter 1 uh, through the second half of, uh, or half of chapter 3. So chapters 1, 2, and half of chapter 3, we see the holiness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, his hatred of sin, his judgment on sin. Those chapters are very stark. We looked at those. But then, in this half of chapter 3, starting in verse 9, we see the mercy and grace of God. We see his love, we see his forgiveness, and we see his restoration. So it's just amazing to see in one prophet, we get the stark reality of the wrath of God and the beautiful nature of the mercy and grace of God all being spoken uh, to the nations and to God's people. So in a sense, what do we see in how people respond in this book? How we, how we tend to live or, or different people tend to live? And, and he's speaking of verses 9 and 10 and 3, speaking of the nations. And then he speaks of, in verse 11 and following, of the people of Israel, God's people, that the grace of God extends to his people Israel and to the nations. What do we see in Zephaniah 3? Here's the nature of what humanity Look like, or at least one description. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. The, the nature of humanity, uh, with in relationship to God, in our natural condition, as as we live, uh, unless God does a marvelous work, is that we are. In rebellion against him, and it's shown by our deeds, we are proud, we're arrogant in in God's holy mountain, basically we're arrogant even in God's presence. It's a staggering picture where we think we have life figured out even against a holy and righteous God. In verse 13, uh, it goes on, uh, speaking of those uh, who are uh, left in Israel, they shall do what? No injustice. They shall speak no lies, uh, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. So basically, if that's the resolution, what's the, what's the state of being in the people uh, now is injustice, lying, and deceit uh, in their speech. You know, and so how does God respond to this? If people are described by rebellion in their sin, Lies, deceit, uh, injustice. How does God respond to sin in, uh, in men and women, in the people of this world? Well, the prophet, just remind you, explains that in great detail in chapters 1, 2, and the beginning of 3. Here's just a quick summary. Zephaniah 1, 17. I will bring distress on mankind. This is his reaction against our rebellion. So that they shall walk like the blind. Because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end, he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Now that is not good news if you're on the other end of the wrath and judgment of God. 
But the good news of the gospel is that God allowed his son to be at the other end of his wrath and his, and his judgment so that his people might be saved. And so grace is this reversal of the things we deserve. Uh, rather than that, it is God pouring out his grace. It's the blessing of God that is in no way earned or deserved. That's grace. It's not self-help. It is God's help, right? And that's what we see here in this reversal. It is divine action. For at that time, God says, I will change the speech of the peoples that they may call upon me. Uh, In verse 11, uh, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds which you rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. Verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Grace is about God's actions, not about yours and mine. When it comes to grace, the one who is doing the action is God and God alone. Now you might say, well, they had to call in the name of the Lord, didn't they? But notice the order of things back in verse 9. As we read earlier, God says, I will purify their speech so that what? So that then they can call on my name. Do you hear the divine action then leading to our, uh, our response? It is God who will purify and then we can call on the name of the Lord. In grace, God always goes first. Because it's a reversal of what is wrong. God moves first. God enables any move on our part. And that's what makes grace, grace. It's undeserved favor. It's not that we go first and God throws us a bone. It is God goes first. He transforms our hearts and we can respond to him. That's why grace is so humbling. Too proud, capable, successful people. Grace is abhorrent. No, I want to earn it, we say. I get what I deserve, and praise God, that's not the gospel. But yet grace is so humbling, because when we deserve chapter 1, the wrath and judgment of God, instead God gives us chapter 3, the love and forgiveness and his mercy. Other actions of God, he's taken away judgments, he's cleared the enemies, he is the one who uh, is the one who gathers his people. Hear this, just the, this story of grace, these, these uh, things that God brings about at the end of Zephaniah 3, uh, verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At, the, at that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples when I restore your fortunes before your, before your eyes. The gospel of God's grace is a reversal of all of the things uh, in the human heart and even in this 
world. But then we see, how does this then lead us to a reorientation? So it's not just a reversal, but it actually starts to change how we see life. It reorients us to how we see life and even how we see our future. Because verses 14 and 15, as we're going to look at them in a second, there's a thing that there, it's a literary device that the prophets often use, and it's called the prophetic past. Okay? The prophetic past, because if you look at verses 14 and 15, it's future tense, but it's future tense, uh, and but yet uh, the, the sense where the prophet is speaking oftentimes in the past tense, but something that has not yet occurred, okay? Uh, and, or he's speaking, yeah, so he's saying these things have already happened, yet they haven't yet happened, It's the prophetic past that God's people can take them to the bank even before they happen as if with the certainty of them already happening. The certainty, of course, being rooted in the character of God. So here's verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Do you hear the past tense? The Lord has taken away your judgments and your enemies. But guess what? This hasn't happened yet. It will happen. God will bring an enemy against them, Babylon. They haven't even gone into exile yet. And yet this is how God is speaking through his prophet. They'll be in exile for 70 years. God will bring them back and God will be a king in their midst. It is so certain in the character of God, the prophet speaks of it in the past tense. So how does God tell them to respond? How does God tell them to respond to the certainty of God's goodness to them in the future? He says this in verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. What is amazing about this is that God is talking about their distant future, maybe even for their descendants. They will not even see the fulfillment, the full fulfillment of these things, yet God tells them in four different ways, sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult. You know, God empties the Hebrew dictionary into this one verse telling his people to celebrate what he will do. Any way possible to convey that their response should be joy and celebration is in here. It's a blast of loud noise. It's a shout of joy. It's a a glad and joyful, jubilant expression that wild to think that that's what God commands his people to do before things get really bad and before things resolve? That is not American Christianity. American Christianity is when things resolve, we get really excited. When things go south, well, we're just going to be sackcloth and ashes and... but. They were going to get much worse for them. So why would God call them to sing for joy? They're already in the midst of difficulty. And it's going to get worse. And God says, sing, rejoice, shout, and exult. Is God is calling them to look beyond the tragedy. God's calling them to look beyond the situation. 
confident in the future that God has for them. He calls them to celebrate now, to rejoice now in what God will do. This is the Christian life. Suffering as God allows it now, but glory to come. Can you see how that starts to change how you view life and view your future? You know, God is saying that you ought and I ought to to not respond to our life just based on what we see right in front of us. You know what? I got a good job. My kids are doing well. Uh, You know, that God is even saying rejoice now even while things are difficult and in disarray. When things are uncertain, maybe even chaotic, rejoice because we know that God is at work in our lives and for eternity and for our good. So where do we see this on on the the pages of of Christian uh, church history? It's in the 17 and 1800s where the African-American slaves If you want songs that understand suffering and the hope of the gospel, go read the hymns and the the songs that were written during this time. One song, lift every voice and sing. So in the midst of horrific treatment and slavery, this is what they wrote. We have come over a way that, uh, that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Let our rejoicing rise. High as the listening skies, let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of hope that the present has brought us. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand. And and every song traces the path of suffering, but yet hope. In the gospel. Why sing like this? Is because God is the king and he promises that he is with us and in our midst. What's amazing, and I get a kick out of it when God does this, is that we would come to this passage unplanned and unscripted on Palm Sunday. Because uh, so remember verse 14, you know, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult. Here is Zechariah 9, 9, which was quoted at the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That sounds a lot, fami- very familiar, doesn't it? What is it? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you know the only two places that God's people in the New Testament are referred to as the daughter of Zion or the daughter of Jerusalem? Two accounts of the triumphal entry when Jesus is is coming into Jerusalem are the only two times that that phrase in Zechariah and that phrase in Zephaniah refer to God's people. And what do they refer to is a coming king. Rejoice, your king is in your midst. And just like I asked the kids, have you welcomed Jesus as the king of your life? That's the whole point of Palm Sunday. The whole point of Palm Sunday is that he would be the one who would save, and you recognize that you cannot help yourself. You have to 
uh, receive and rest on the grace of, the, of your King Jesus for salvation. So we see the reversal. We see the reorientation that God is calling us to rejoice in the middle of suffering. Why? Because we have a king who is with us. But as much as we're called to rejoice, then we see the rejoicing of God. Now that seems a little strange. What are the things that God gets really excited about? It's an interesting question. What does God start to celebrate over? Well, the end of Zephaniah 3, we see the joy of God for his people. He is overjoyed with them. He loves them. He's filled with ecstatic joy over his sinful people. And that is amazing grace. A holy and righteous God singing songs of joy over his sinful people. He doesn't just simply save us. He rejoices in us. Now, here's a long quote. Uh, from O. Palmer Robertson, and it's not advancing. All right, so there it is. Maybe. All right, so one of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God in judgment found anywhere in Scripture appears in the opening verses of Zephaniah. Okay? So one of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God is there. One of the most moving descriptions of the love of God for his people found anywhere in Scripture, appears in the closing verses of Zephaniah. And what is it? Is Zephaniah 3.17, that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Get this. This is what he thinks of his people. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How can you get the picture of God's stark response to sin and his wrath and his judgment and then the, then the book end with this? That's the grace of our God. God delights in us. He quiets us. He bursts into song. If you are in Christ, now here, get this. This is not a universal promise. This is not a universal promise. Just like we looked at last week. That not everybody in Israel was true Israel, the remnant. Not everybody sitting in a church actually is the church, the ones who know Christ and are saved by his grace. This is not a universal promise. This is for those who are in Christ that have been covered by his death and his resurrection and are clothed in his righteous life. That the Lord, your God, is with you. He's a mighty one who will save. If you are one who is still stuck on self-help and not resting on the grace and the mercy of God, this promise is not for you. It is for God's people where the ones he has saved, the ones he has brought in, the ones he has covered by his grace, God rejoices and sings over you. And delights in you. Robertson called this the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Because when we see this and start to understand this, one commentator named Boo Heflin, not sure what, anyway, um, but <laughs> he said this, We are to rejoice in him because he 
our gracious King and Savior rejoices in us. Grace is about God going first. And when God goes first and saves us and shows his mercy to us and we rest on that and he, and he rejoices over us, then that transforms our hearts so that we can rejoice in him. Truly, this Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode in on a donkey, Hosanna, blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Have you welcomed him as your king? Do you understand the reversing, the, the, the reorienting grace of God in your life? Or are you still living in self-help? I pray that today is the day of salvation. And if you don't know him, please find us after the service. We would love to introduce you to the king. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I pray in thanks that the gospel of your grace is not based on our goodness. It's not based on us getting our life straight. Father, it's based on the beautiful picture of the love that you have for us, that you would pour out your wrath and your judgment on Jesus, the one who was without sin, so that we might be welcomed as your sons and daughters, that we might be the ones who are underneath that exuberant joy of your love. Father, I, I, at times, it's hard to even fathom. But God, thank you for the promise of the gospel. Thank you for the blessing that it brings. Thank you uh, for your goodness to us. Father, I pray for someone in this room that doesn't know you, that is, has lived their whole life based on what they can try to figure out and what they can arrange. God, would you humble them today? By your, the power of your spirit, would you bring about salvation? God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you for your love and the blessing that that is. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.